Well, I wonder if you uh, could ask God for one thing and you knew he would give it to you, what would you ask for? The one thing that you would say, what's your greatest desire, your biggest need? The one thing that if God made it happen for you, would just completely transform your life. I wonder if you, if you turned to the back of the Bible and you found there, tucked in the back, glowing brightly, a golden ticket. And on the golden ticket, it said, I promise to grant the bearer on demand the answer to one prayer. Signed, Almighty God. What would you use it on? If you closed your eyes and you held that ticket, what would you ask God for, I wonder? Well, keep that thought in mind and we'll come back to it. Just for now, let's remind ourselves where we're up to in the story of Jesus. I mentioned we've been working our way through these uh, first couple of chapters and looking at what Jesus said and did. And we've been seeing in the last few weeks Jesus' arrival on the scene. Uh, He started off when he turned up by teaching. He was, got a reputation for being an amazing teacher and he grew, drew huge crowds wherever he went. But he couldn't just teach, he could also heal. And he did extraordinary miracles. And so the word got out and before the days of newspapers and television and social media, it spread like wildfire. And everywhere Jesus went, there was a crowd wanting to see him do something special. And so we finished up last week looking at Jesus healed this guy and he told him, chapter 1, verse 44, don't tell anyone, keep your mouth shut, and said no, verse 45. It said he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but had to stay outside in lonely places. And yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Like Beatlemania. Have you seen the footage of that in the 1960s when the Beatles went to America? I mean, they couldn't go anywhere without there being a crowd and they just, the people went crazy. And the Beatles had to go in an armoured car even to their concerts because otherwise they'd be mobbed. And the Beatles were so popular even that John Lennon famously said, didn't he, that the Beatles had become more popular than Jesus. I don't know whether they were more popular than Jesus, probably not, I don't think. Um, But nevertheless, John Lennon got a glimpse, didn't he, of what it must have been actually like to be Jesus, to have these crowds following him wherever he went. And that's the scene as we start in verse 1 of chapter 2. A few days later, Jesus came again to Capernaum. The people heard he'd come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside. So a huge crowd that gathered. And what did he do? A crowd had assembled. What did Jesus do? Well, we saw last week what his priority was whenever he drew a crowd, and that was to preach. And it says here, he preached the word to them. But he got interrupted mid-sermon. Now, uh, sometimes you do get interrupted mid-sermon. I've been interrupted uh, once or twice, once at a funeral. And uh, somebody's mobile phone, the sat-nav on someone's mobile phone, announced very loudly to the congregation, you have reached your final destination. (laughs) I thought for a funeral was really rather quite something. But um, and normally if you get interrupted as a preacher, well, you sort of just keep your composure, attempt to maybe bat it off a little joke and keep going. There's no way that Jesus or his hearers were going to keep going with this interruption because actually mid-talk, there was a loud kind of scratching and banging and clattering going on on the roof and everybody's going, what's that? And they start to look up and then dust begins to sort of drift down from the ceiling, probably landed in a few people's eyes. And then chunks of plaster are falling down from the roof. And then suddenly, bang, 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 and there's a hole and they can see daylight. And four faces 
peering through the hole. Verse 3, the men came bringing a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. They couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowd. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus, digging a hole through it, and then lowered the man down through it. Now, I'd love to know how they did that. You know, did they, uh, was that their plan all along? Did they think, we're probably not going to be able to get in. You know, we're going to get up on the roof. Did they bring ropes with them in advance, knowing that they were going to have to carefully lower him down? Or did they just sort of get there and think, oh, we're going to have to sort of improvise here, just dig a hole, and then sort of lowered him down as far as they could, and then maybe had to drop him the rest of the way, and they probably thought, well, it doesn't much matter if he breaks another bone or two on, on the way down. You know, Jesus is right there. He'll be fine. I don't know. I'd love to know how they, how they came about that. But either way, you can just picture the scene, can't you? And Jesus is there looking down at this man, looking up at his friends. He probably starts a slow hand clap or something. Well done. I mean, you have to admire the creativity, the persistence of these guys. I mean, it's slightly unorthodox to come in through the roof, but they've got what they wanted, an audience with Jesus. And what follows is one of the most surprising and yet instructive conversations that happens in the whole of the New Testament. It's such a surprising conversation that unfolds. And it tells us something, I mentioned at the beginning, it's all about forgiveness, the conversation that follows. And I think it can teach us three things this morning about forgiveness. It can teach us about the priority of forgiveness, the possibility of forgiveness, and the power of forgiveness. Three uh, Ps for us this morning. First of all, the priority of forgiveness. Because when the extraordinary thing is, when this guy comes to Jesus, well, he's got a priority, hasn't he? I mean, what's his priority? If you thought, you know, back to the beginning, what, what would I want God to do for me? Well, if he had the golden ticket, this guy, we know what he'd want to use it on, don't we? He was paralysed. You know, if, he could do, if God could do one thing for this man, it would be to walk, wouldn't it? He wanted a healing. That's why he was there. That was his priority. And that's why the guys had brought him and led him down through the roof. And yet, Jesus has got another priority for him, and it's not his healing. Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now that seems illogical, doesn't it? It seems like it's a completely non-secretive. Why is he talking about forgiveness of sins? He's not there for forgiveness of sins. Imagine turning up at a restaurant and the waiter goes, I can see you're hungry. Here's two tickets to the theatre. You're going, what? That's not why we're here. I don't need two tickets to the theatre. I need something to eat. And this guy has come down, lowered on a mat, paralysed, clearly in need of something, and Jesus says, and, and it says, when Jesus saw their faith, in other words, when he saw their faith that Jesus could heal, he said, your sins are forgiven. The guy's thinking, forgiven? I don't need forgiveness. That's not why I'm here. That's not my priority, and yet it was Jesus' priority. It seemed illogical. It seemed a little bit insensitive, doesn't it, for Jesus to start? I mean, the guy's clearly in a bad shape. And now Jesus is adding insult to injury, isn't he? By sort of saying to him, let's talk about your sins and implying that he needs forgiveness. It's not very kind, is it? A bit insensitive to him, almost like victim shaming. It almost seems possibly as well inconsistent. Inconsistent with what the rest of the Bible teaches us about the relationship and the connection between sin and suffering. See, many people assume, oh, there must be a link between sin and suffering. There's got to be, a, you know, many people assume that. Why has this happened? Well, I must have done something to deserve it. And yet the whole of the Bible teaches no. 
That's not why suffering happens. The Bible does not teach karma. What goes around comes around. In fact, the whole of the book of Job, which is the oldest book in the Bible, was written to ask that age-old question. And Job, everything went wrong for Job, and his friends, so-called, spend the whole book going, Job, come on, admit it. You must have done something to deserve all of this. And Job said, no. There's no easy answers to why suffering happens. In fact, Jesus was asked it once. There's a time when they came across the blind man, and the disciples go, well, why is this guy blind? Is it his fault? Is it his own sin, or is it his parents' sin that's the reason for his suffering? Jesus goes, neither. That's not why. Well, is Jesus inconsistent here? Is he undermining his own teaching elsewhere? Is he, say, is he, is he sort of implying by saying your sins are forgiven that the reason why he's paralysed in the first place is because of some sin? No. He's not saying that. Jesus is not being insensitive or illogical or inconsistent. What he's simply doing is saying that you have got a need, but let me tell you, you've got a greater need. You're coming here asking for something, but I've got something for you so much more valuable, so much more precious, and of so much more lasting eternal significance. The need for forgiveness. The priority of forgiveness is what Jesus is saying. Because the reality is, we've all got a serious situation. The fact is, we're all sinners. Not just this guy. It's not just Prince Andrew, or Boris, or Hitler, you know, sinners over there. No, actually, the Bible says we're all sinners. We're all in need of forgiveness, which is a serious problem because as the promises which have just been made at the baptism, do you repent of your sins which separate you from God? Sin separates us from God. It's a huge problem. And Jesus says it's our number one priority. Well, what can be done? Well, in this encounter, we see not just the priority of forgiveness, but the possibility of forgiveness. Verse 6. The teachers of the law are sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And just picture it. You go back to the room. There they all are, packed like sardines. And at the back of the room, there are the religious leaders, the Jewish teachers. And they're there, probably sat there with their arms folded. What's Jesus all about? They've come to sort of check out this new upstart preacher. What's his message? Who is he? What's he all about? And they're trying to suss him out. And what they hear sickens them. Because what the preacher does, Jesus, is claim to be able to forgive sins and of course nobody can do that except God and they're right to ask that question who does this man think he is because only God can forgive sins because only the one who's been sinned against has the right to be able to forgive I mean imagine if I as the vicar managed to somehow get unrestricted access to the church's bank account and imagine I used I siphoned off all the funds to support my secret hobby playing online poker Now, I don't have a secret gambling addiction, you'll be relieved to hear. But imagine I did. And imagine that I woke up one morning and all the money's gone. And I'm racked with guilt and filled with remorse. And I'm thinking, oh no, the church isn't going to be able to afford to pay its way. The heating won't be able to put on. The bishop's going to close the church down and it's all my fault. And I say to Hannah, my wife, I'm so sorry. And she goes, don't worry, darling. I forgive you. And I go, oh, phew, thank goodness for that. And I turn up on Sunday morning and I go, don't worry, everybody, the church is going to close, but it's okay because Hannah has forgiven me. You'd probably be sitting there going, um, well, hang on a minute. It's actually not her sin to forgive because she wasn't the one what was sinned against. And it's a bit like that here because ultimately it's only God who can forgive sins because all sins ultimately are against God. And here's Jesus going, I forgive you, I forgive you. What's he saying? 
He's saying, I am God incarnate. And they're going, that's blasphemy. And we're seeing already in only two chapters in to Mark's gospel what eventually got Jesus killed. The claim to be God. And the Jewish religious leaders were like, no, we're not having any of this. So what, Jesus, what choice did Jesus have but to prove to them that he is God? So he had to prove it. The first thing he did was read their minds. Only God can do it. It's quite impressive, isn't it? Verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? That must have put them on the back foot. You at the back there, uh, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this, aren't you? And they're going, oh gosh, yes, we are actually, as a matter of fact. So he goes, and then he asked them a brilliant question. Which is easier, to forgive sins or to heal? It's such a great question because, well, which is easier? In one sense, it's much more easy, it's much more difficult to say, uh, I heal you. Because if you say that and nothing happens, he says to the paralysed man, uh, I heal you of your paralysis, and nothing happens, well, you can tell he's a fraud, isn't he? He, he, He's got no power to do anything. Whereas he says, I forgive your sins, no one can check. But you can immediately check whether someone's been healed or not. And so Jesus says to them, verse 10, I want you to know that I've got the ability to forgive sins, so I tell you, take up your mat and go home, and which he did. And so his ability to do the physical healing proves that he's got the ability to do the spiritual renewal of forgiveness in this guy's life. He proves to them he's God. But it's such a brilliant question, which is easier, because actually, which is easier, to heal or to forgive? Well, to forgive is harder, because only God can do that. And he's saying, I'm here, I can do it, I can make it possible, I can forgive you your sins. And he can do the same for us this morning. The priority of forgiveness, the biggest need we've all got, the possibility of forgiveness. Jesus Christ can forgive us our sins, but thirdly, the power of forgiveness. Because look at what happens, verse 12. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And we said last week that Jesus' miracles were signs. They always pointed to something. And clearly this guy's physical healing that brought him new life was a picture of what had taken place internally, that he'd been spiritually healed and that he enjoyed new spiritual life. Completely life-transforming, amazed everyone. And they said, we've never seen it before. And that's true, isn't it? Like, forgiveness is it's rare. It's, there isn't forgiveness easily available in 21st century Britain, is there? If you do something wrong today, you don't get forgiven. You get cancelled. Imagine if Boris did one of his press conferences this afternoon at five o'clock, and we think he's going to update us about COVID, but actually says, you know what, guys? Um, I've got a personal confession to make. I did host all those parties, and I shouldn't have done, and I'm really, really sorry. Or imagine if Prince Andrew in tomorrow's paper, actually, it comes out, and he says, all these allegations against me, do you know what? I'm not going to fight them. They're all true. I don't know what to tell you. I'm a sinner. Can you ever forgive me? What would the public reaction be to that? Crucify him. No grace. No forgiveness. To err is human. And we've all erred from thy ways. Like lost sheep, we've followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We've offended against thy holy laws. We've left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we've done those things which we ought not to have done. It's not just Boris and Prince Andrew and Hitler. It's all of us. To err is human. But to forgive is divine. And that is life transforming. 
Those of us who've encountered the forgiveness of God for our sins, not just this guy, it completely changed his life. I mean, if he walked out of there now, I bet if we interviewed him, if we got him here today, we summoned him down from heaven, and this paralysed man who's paralysed no longer, we could interview him here at St Michael's this morning and said to him, you went in there asking for one thing and you came out with something else. He would say, you know what, the thing that I got was so much more valuable. If I'd have used my golden ticket on my healing, well, that wouldn't have got me very far. But what I got was so life-transforming. It gave me eternal life, forgiveness. The last 2,000 years have flown past. He's there in glory now with a new body. And it's the same for us this morning. Those of us who will, if we will confess our sins and bring them to God and allow him to do his work of forgiveness in our lives. Well, just like this crowd of people, we'll be amazed as well. Let's pray.